Disc 4. Chapter 15. Locked in the Cave. Dick, George and Anne looked at one another in dismay. Someone must have been lying in wait for them. Someone must have captured Timmy and shut him up. And now, they were captured too. Timmy began to bark when Julian shouted. He ran to the door. Julian was hammering on it and even kicking it. A voice came from the other side of the door, a drawling voice, sounding rather amused. You came at an awkward time, that's all, and you must remain where you are till tomorrow. Who are you? said Julian fiercely. How dare you lock us in like this? I believe you have food and drink with you, said the voice. I noticed the packs on your backs, which I presume contain food. That is lucky for you. Now, be sensible. You must pay the penalty for being inquisitive. You let us out, shouted Julian, enraged at the cool voice with its impertinent tone. He kicked the door again out of temper, though he knew that it wasn't the slightest use. There was no reply. Whoever it was outside the cave door had gone. Julian gave the door one last furious kick and looked round at the others. That man must have been watching us from somewhere. Probably followed us all the way to the old house and saw the packs on our backs then. It must have been him that you heard down in the house when we were in the tower, Anne. Timmy barked again. He was still at the door. George called to him. Tim, it's no use. The door's locked. Oh, dear, why did we let you go into that hole first? If you hadn't run on ahead and somehow got yourself caught... You'd have been able to protect us when those men lay in wait. Well, what do we do now? said Anne, trying to sound brave. What can we do? said George. Nothing at all. Here we are, locked and bolted in a cave, inside a cliff, with nobody near except the fellow who locked us in. If anybody's got any ideas, I'd like to hear them. You do sound cross, said Anne. I suppose there isn't anything to do but wait till we're let out. I only hope that man remembers we're here. Nobody else knows where we are. Horrid thought, said Dick. Still, I've no doubt that Mrs. Penruthlin would raise the alarm and a search party would set out to find us. <laughs> what a hope they'd have, said George. Even if they did trace us to the old tower, they wouldn't know the secret entrance to the passage. Well, let's look on the cheerful side, said Julian, undoing the pack from his back. Let's have some food. Everybody cheered up at once. I feel quite hungry, said Anne in surprise. It must be past our dinner time now. Well, anyway, eating will be something to do. They had a very good meal and felt thankful that Mrs. Penruthlin had packed up so much food. If they were not going to be let out till the next day, they would need plenty to eat. They examined the boxes and crates. Some were very old. All were empty. There was a big seaman's chest there, too, with Abram Trelawney painted on it. They lifted the lid. That was empty, too, save for one old brass button. Abram Trelawney, said Dick, looking at the name. He must have been a sailor on one of the ships that the wreckers enticed to the rocks. This chest must have been rolled up on the beach by the waves and brought up here. I dare say this cave was the place where the man who owned that old house took his share of the booty and hid it. Yes, I think you're right, said Julian. That is why it has a door that can be locked. The wreckers probably stored quite a lot of valuable things here from different wrecks and didn't want any other wrecker to creep up from the cave and take them. What a hateful lot they must have been. Well, there doesn't seem anything of real interest here. It was very, very boring in the cave. The children used only one torch because they were afraid that if they used the others they had brought, they might exhaust all the batteries and then have to be in the dark. Julian examined the cave from top to bottom, 
to see if there was any possible way of escape, but there wasn't. That was quite clear. The cave walls were made of solid rocks, and there wasn't a hole anywhere through which to escape, big or small. That man said we'd come at an awkward time, said Julian, throwing himself down on the ground. Why? Are they expecting some smuggled goods tonight? They've signalled out to sea twice already this week, as we know. Hasn't the boat they expected come along yet? If so, they must be expecting it tonight. And so we've come at an awkward time. If only we weren't locked in this beastly cave, said George. We might have spied on them and seen what they were up to, and might even have been able to stop them somehow, or get word to the police. Well, we can't now, said Dick gloomily. Timmy, you were an ass to get caught. You really were. Timmy put his tail down and looked as gloomy as Dick. He didn't like being in this low-roofed cave. Why didn't they open the door and go out? He went to the door and whined, scraping at it with his feet. No good, Tim. It won't open, said Anne. I think he's thirsty, George. There was nothing for Timmy to drink except homemade lemonade, and he didn't seem to like that very much. Don't waste it on him if he doesn't like it, said Julian hastily. We may be jolly glad of it ourselves tomorrow. Dick glanced at his watch. Only half past two, he groaned. Hours and hours to wait. Let's have a game of some sort. Noughts and crosses would be better than nothing. They played noughts and crosses till they were sick of them. They played word games and guessing games. They had a light tea at five o'clock and began to wonder what Mrs. Penruthland would think when they didn't turn up that evening. If Mr. Penruthland is mixed up in this affair, and it's pretty certain that he is, said Julian, he'll not be best pleased to be told to fetch the police to look for us. It's just the one night he won't want the police about. I think you're wrong, said George. I think he'd be delighted to have the police looking for lost children and not poking their noses into his affairs tonight. I hadn't thought of that, said Julian. How slowly the time went by. They yawned, talked, fell silent, argued, and played with Timmy. Julian's torch flickered out, and they took Dick's instead. Good thing we brought more than one torch, said Anne. Half past nine came, and they all began to feel sleepy. I vote we try to go to sleep, said Dick, yawning hugely. There's a sandy spot over there, softer to lie on than this rock. What about trying to sleep? They all thought it was a good idea and went to the sandy spot. It certainly was better than the hard rock. They wriggled about in the sand and made dents for their bodies to lie in. It's still hard complained George. Oh, Timmy, darling, don't snuffle all round my face. Lie down beside me and Anne and go to sleep too. Timmy lay down on George's legs. He put his nose on his paws and heaved a huge sigh. I hope Timmy's not going to do that all night, said Anne. What a draught! Although they thought they couldn't possibly go to sleep, they did. Timmy did too though he kept one ear open and one eye ready to open. He was on guard. No one could open that door or even come near it without Timmy hearing. At about eleven o'clock, Timmy opened one eye and cocked both ears. He listened, not taking his head off George's legs. He opened the other eye. Then he sat up and listened harder. George woke up when he moved and stretched out a hand to Timmy. Tim, lie down, she whispered. But Timmy didn't. He gave a small whine. George sat up, fully awake. Why was Timmy whining? Was there something going on outside the door? Men passing, perhaps, on their way to the cove? Had the light been flashing out to sea, 
and had it brought in the boat the men were waiting for? She put her hand on Timmy's collar. What is it? she whispered, expecting Timmy to growl when he next heard something. But he didn't growl, he whined again. Then he shook off George's hand and went to the door. George switched on her torch, puzzled. Timmy scraped at the door and whined again, but he still didn't growl. Jew, I believe someone is at the door, called George, suddenly in a low voice. I believe Timmy can hear a search party or something. Wake up! Everyone awoke suddenly. George repeated her words again. Timmy's not growling. That means it's not our enemies he hears, she added. He'd growl like anything at the man who locked us in. Be quiet for a moment and listen, said Julian. Let's see if we can hear anything ourselves. We haven't got Timmy's sharp ears, but we might be able to hear something. They sat absolutely still, listening. Then Julian nudged Dick. He had heard something. Quiet, he breathed. They listened again, hardly breathing. They heard a little scrabbling noise at the door. Then it stopped. George expected Timmy to break out into a fusillade of barks at once, but he didn't. He stood there with his head on one side and his ears cocked. He gave an excited little whine and suddenly scraped at the door again. Somebody whispered outside the door and Timmy whined and ran to George and then back to the door again. Everyone was puzzled. Julian got up and went to the door himself his feet making no sound. Yes, there was most certainly somebody outside. Two people, perhaps, whispering to one another. Who's there? said Julian suddenly. I can hear you outside. Who is it? There was dead silence for a moment, and then a small, familiar voice answered softly. It's me, Jan. Jan? Gosh! Is it really you? Yes. There was an amazed silence in the cave. Yan! Yan, at this time of night, outside the door of the very cave they were locked in. Were they dreaming? Timmy went mad when he heard Yan speaking to Julian. He flung himself at the door, barking and yelping. Julian put his hand on his collar. Be quiet, idiot. You'll spoil everything. Be quiet. Timmy stopped. Julian spoke to Jan again. Jan, have you got a light? No, no light. It is dark here, said Jan. Can I come to you? Yes, of course. Listen, Jan, do you know how to unlock and unbolt a door? Asked Julian, wondering whether the half-wild boy knew even such simple things. Yes said Jan. Are you locked in? Yes, said Julian. But the key may be in the lock. Feel and see. Feel for the bolts, too. Slide them back and turn the key if there is one. The four in the cave held their breath as they heard Jan's hands wandering over the stout door in the dark, tapping here and there to find the bolts and the lock. Then they heard the bolts being slid smoothly back. How they hoped their captor had left the key in the lock. Here is a key, said Jan's voice suddenly. But it is so stiff. My hand isn't strong enough to turn it. Try both hands at once, said Julian urgently. They heard Jan trying, panting with his efforts. But the key would not turn. Blow! said Dick, so near and yet so far. Anne pushed Dick out of the way, an idea suddenly flooding into her mind. Jan, listen to me, Jan. Take the key out of the lock and push it under the bottom of the door. Do you hear me? Yes, I heard, said Jan, and they heard him tugging at the key. There was a sharp noise as it came suddenly out of the lock. Then, lo and behold, it appeared under the bottom of the door, 
slid through carefully by Jan. Julian snatched it up and put it into the lock on his side. He turned the key and unlocked the door. What a wonderful bit of luck! Chapter 16 Wrecker's Way Julian flung open the door. Timmy leapt past him and yelped with delight to find Jan standing outside. He fawned on the boy and licked him, and Jan laughed. Let's get out of here quick, said Dick. That man may be along at any moment. You can't tell. Right, explanations later, said Julian. He hustled everyone out, took the key from the inside lock and shut the door. He inserted the key into the outside lock and turned it. He shot the bolts, took out the key and put it into his pocket. He grinned at Dick. Now, if that man comes along to see how we are, he won't even know we're gone. He won't be able to get in to see if we're there or not. Where shall we go now? asked Anne, feeling as if she was in a peculiar kind of dream. Julian stood and considered. It would be madness to go back up the passage and into the old house, he said. If there's any signalling going on, and there's pretty certain to be, we shall be caught again. We'd be sure to make a noise scrambling out of that hole in the fireplace. Well, let's take that other passage we saw. The right-hand one, said George. Look, there it is. She shone her torch on it. Where does it lead to, Jan? To the beach, said Jan. I went down it when I was looking for you all, but you weren't there. So I came back and found that door. There is nobody on the beach. Well, let's go down there then, said Dick. Once we feel we're out of danger's way, we can plan what's best to do. They went along the other passage, their torch showing them the way. It was a steep tunnel, and they found it rather difficult going. Anne managed to give Jan a squeeze. You were clever to find us, she said. And Jan gave her a smile, which she couldn't see because of the dark. They heard the sound of waves at last and came out into the open air. It was a windy night, but stars were shining in the sky and gave quite a fair light after the darkness of the passage. Where are we exactly? said Dick, looking round. Then he saw they were on the same beach as they had been a few days before, but a good way farther along. Can we get back to the farm from here? said Julian, stopping to consider exactly where they were. Gosh, I think we'd better hurry. The tide's coming in. We'll be cut off if we don't look out. A wave ran up the sand almost to their feet. Julian took a quick look at the cliff behind them. It was very steep. They certainly couldn't climb it in the darkness. Would there be time to look for a cave to sit in till the tide went out again? Another wave ran up, and Julian's feet felt suddenly wet. Blow, he said. This is getting serious. The next big one will sweep us off our feet. I wish the moon was out. These stars give such a faint light. Jan, is there a cave we can go to? A cave open to the air, not inside the cliff, said George anxiously. I'll take you back by the wrecker's way, said Jan, surprisingly. Come with me. Of course. You said you knew the wrecker's way, said Julian, remembering. If it comes out near here... We're in luck's way. Lead on, Jan. You're a marvel. But do hurry. Our feet got wet again just then, and at any moment a giant of a wave may come. Jan took the lead. He led them into cove after cove, and then came to a larger one than usual. He took them to the back of the cove and led them a little way up a cliff path. He came to a great rock. He squeezed behind it, and the others followed one by one. Nobody could ever have guessed that there was a way into the cliff behind that rock. Now we are in the wrecker's way, said Jan proudly, and led them on again. But suddenly he stopped, and the others all bumped into one another. Timmy gave a short warning bark, and George put her hand on his collar. Somebody's coming, whispered Jan 
and pushed them back. Sure enough, they could hear voices in the distance. They turned and hurried back. They didn't want to walk into any more trouble. Yan got to the front and led them back to the big rock. He was trembling. They all squeezed out behind it, and Yan went along the cliff face to a tiny cave. Really, only a big ledge with an overhanging roof. Shh, he said warningly, sounding like a snake. They sat down and waited. Two men came out from behind the rock, one a big man and one a small one. Nobody could see them clearly, but Julian hissed into Dick's ear, I'm sure that's Mr. Penruthlin. See how enormous he is. Dick nodded. It was no surprise to him to think that the giant farmer should be mixed up in this. The five children held their breath and watched. Yan nudged Dick and pointed out to sea. Boat coming, he whispered. Dick could see and hear nothing, but in a few moments he did hear something, the whir of a fast motorboat. What sharp ears Yan must have! The others heard the noise, too, through the crashing of the waves on the rocks. No light, whispered Yan, as the noise of the boat grew louder. He'll be on the rocks, said Dick. But before the boat got to the rocks, the engine stopped. The children could just make out the boat now, swaying up and down beyond the barrier of rocks. Evidently, it was not going to try and come any farther in. Now the watchers could hear voices again. The two men, who had come down Wrecker's way, were standing below the big rock that hid the entrance, talking. One leapt down to a rock farther down and disappeared. The other man was left standing alone. It was the big man who leapt down, whispered Julian. Where's he gone? Ah, there he is. You can just see him moving behind that rock down there. What's he got? A boat, whispered Jan. He has a boat down there, pulled up high out of reach of the big waves. There is a pool there. He is going to row out to the other boat. The children strained their eyes to watch. The sky was quite clear, but the only light they had was from the stars, and it was difficult to see anything more than moving shadows or outlines. Then there came the sound of oars in Rollocks, and a moving black shadow of a rowing boat and man could be seen faintly going over the waves. Does he know the way through that mass of rocks? wondered Dick. He must know this coast well to risk rowing out through the rocks at high tide in the dead of night. Why is he doing it? He's getting smuggled goods from the motorboat, said Julian. Goodness knows what. There, I've lost him in the darkness. So had everyone. They could no longer hear the oars either but the crashing of the waves on the rocks drowned every other sound. Beyond the rocks lay the motorboat, but only Yan's sharp eyes could see it even faintly in the starlight. Once, in a sudden silence of the waves, there came the exchange of voices over the water. He's reached the motorboat, said Dick. He'll be back in a minute. Look, the second man is going down to the cove now. Going to help the first one in, I expect, said Julian. What about us escaping through the wrecker's way while we've got the chance? Good idea, said George, scrambling up. Come on, Timmy, home. They went to the great rock and squeezed behind it once more into the entrance of the wrecker's way. Then, Jan once more leading, they went up the secret passage, flicking on the torch very thankfully. Where does the wrecker's way come out? asked Anne. In a shed at Tremannan Farm, said Yan, to the astonishment of everyone. Goodness! So, it's very nice and handy for Mr. Penruthlin, said George. I wonder how many times he has been up on the hills at night and has been warned by the tower light to go down Wrecker's Way to the cove and collect smuggled goods from some boat or other. A very good scheme, it seems to me, and impossible for anyone to find out. Except us, said Dick in a pleased voice. We got onto it pretty well. There's not much we don't know about Mr. Penruthlin now. They went on and on. The passage was fairly straight, 
and had probably been the bed of an underground stream at some time. The way was quite smooth to the feet. We've walked about a mile, I should think, groaned Dick at last. How far now, Jan? Shall we soon be back? Yes, said Jan. Anne suddenly remembered that nobody knew how it was that Jan had found them that night. She turned to him. Jan, how did you find us tonight? It seemed like a miracle when we woke up to find you outside that locked door. It was easy, said Jan. You said to me, go away, do not come with us today. So I went back a little way, but I followed you. I followed you to the old house, though I was frightened. I guess you were frightened, said Dick with a grin. Well, go on. I hid, said Jan. You went up into the tower a long time. I came out into the room below and... It was you we heard scuffling there then, said Anne. We wondered who it was. Yes, said Jan. I sat down on some weeds in a corner and waited till you came down. And then I hid again. But I watched you through a hole from outside. I saw you go through the fireplace. One minute you were there, the next you were gone. I was frightened. So, it was you who flattened down that patch of weeds that Timmy sniffed at, said Dick. Well, what did you do next? I was going to come too, said Jan. But the hall was so dark and black. I stood in the fireplace for a long time, hoping you would come back. Then what happened, said Dick. Then I heard voices, said Jan. I thought it was you all coming back, but it wasn't. It was men, so I ran away and hid in the nettles. <laughs> what a place to choose, said George. Then I was hungry, said Jan, and I went back to Grandad's hut for food. He cuffed me for leaving him and he made me work for him all day. He was angry with me. My word! So you've been on the hills all day, knowing we were down in that passage, said Julian. Didn't you say anything to anyone? I went down to Tremannan Farm to see if you were back when it grew dark, said Jan. But you weren't there. Only the Barneys were there, giving another show. I didn't see Mr. or Mrs. Penruthlan. I knew then that you must still be down in that dark hole. I was afraid the men had hurt you. So you came... All the way again in the dark, said Julian, astonished. Well, you've got pluck, I must say. I was very frightened, said Jan. My legs shook at the knees like my old granddad's. I climbed in at the hall and at last I found you. With no torch to light the way, said Dick, and clapped the small boy on the back. You're a real friend, Jan. Timmy knew you all right when you came to the locked door. He didn't even bark. He knew it was you. I wanted to save Timmy too, said Jan. Timmy is my friend. George said nothing to that. She was thinking, rather unwillingly, that Jan was a remarkably brave young man and that she had been silly and unkind to resent Timmy's liking for him. What a good thing he had liked Timmy. Jan suddenly stopped. We are there, he said. We are at Tremannan Farm. Look above your heads. Julian flashed his torch upwards and stared. An open trapdoor was just above them. The trapdoor is open, he said. Someone came down here tonight. And we know who, said Dick grimly. Mr Penruthland and his friend. Where does that trapdoor lead to, Jan? Into a corner of the machine shed, said Jan. When the trapdoor is shut, it is covered with sacks of corn or onions. They have been moved to open the way down. They all climbed out. Julian flashed the torch round the shed. Yes, there were the machines and the tools. Well, who would have thought that the sacks he had seen in here the other day were hiding the trapdoor that led to the wrecker's way? Chapter 17. Long After Midnight A rat suddenly shot out from a corner of the shed and tore across to the open trap door. Timmy gave a bark and leapt after it. 
he just stopped himself from taking a header through the trap door by sliding along on all four feet and coming to a stop at the entrance. He stood up and looked down the hole, his head cocked to one side. Look, he's listening, said Anne. Is there someone coming? Those men, perhaps, with the smuggled goods? No, he's only listening for the rat, said Julian. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll shut the trap door and pile sacks and boxes and everything on top of it. Then, when the men come up, they'll find themselves trapped. They won't be able to get out. If we can get the police in time, they'll be able to catch them easily. Good idea, said Dick. Super. How mad those two men will be when they come to the trap door and find it shut. They can't get out the other way because the tide's up. I'd like to see Mr. Penruthland's face when he sees the trap door shut and feels a whole lot of things piled on top of it, said Julian. He'll make a few more of his peculiar noises. Oh, ah, ach, said Dick solemnly. Come on, help me with the trap door, Jew. It's heavy. They shut the big trap door and then began to drag sacks, boxes, and even some kind of heavy farm machine on top of the trap door. Now, certainly nobody could open it from underneath. They were hot and very dirty by the time they had finished. They were also beginning to feel very tired. Phew, said Dick. I'm glad that's done. Now we'd better go to the farmhouse and show ourselves to Mrs. Penruthlin. Oh, dear. Do we tell her about her husband and how he's mixed up in this horrid business, said Anne. I do so like her. I expect she's very worried about us, too. Yes, it's going to be a bit difficult, said Julian soberly. Better let me do most of the talking. Come on, we'll go. Don't make too much row or we'll set the dogs barking. I'm surprised they haven't yelled their heads off already. It was rather surprising. Usually the farm dogs barked the place down if there was any unusual noise in the night. The five children and Timmy left the machine shed and made their way towards the farmhouse. George pulled at Julian's arm. Look, she said in a low voice, see those lights up in the hills? What are they? Julian looked. He could see moving lights here and there up on the hills. He was puzzled. Then he made a guess. I bet Mrs. Penruthlin has sent out searchers for us, he said, and they've got lanterns. They're hunting for us on the hills. Gosh, I hope all the Barneys aren't out after us, too. They came to the farmyard, moving very quietly. The big barn, used by the Barneys for their show, was in darkness. Julian pictured it full of benches, left from that night's show. The memory of Mr. Penruthlin turning out the pockets of the clothes left and hunting through the drawers in the chest used by the Barneys came into his mind. A sharp whisper made them stop very suddenly. George put her hand on Timmy's collar to stop him growling or barking. Who was this now? None of the little company answered or moved. The whisper came again. Here. I'm here. Still nobody moved. They were all puzzled. Who was waiting there in the shadows? And for whom was he waiting? The whisper came again, a little louder. Here. Over here. And then, as if too impatient to wait any longer, the whisperer moved out into the yard. Julian couldn't see who it was in the dark, and he quickly flashed his torch on the man. It was the governor, grim-faced as ever. He flinched as the light fell on his face, took a few steps back, and disappeared round a corner. Timmy growled. Well... How many more people wander about at night here, said Dick. That was the governor. What was he doing? I give it up, said Julian. I'm getting too tired to think straight. I shouldn't be in the least surprised to see Clopper the horse peering round a corner at us and saying, Peebo, chaps. Everyone chuckled. It was just the kind of thing Clopper would do if he were really alive. They came to the farmhouse. It was full of light, upstairs and downstairs. The curtains were not drawn across the kitchen window, and the children looked in as they passed. Mrs. Penruthlin was sitting there, her hands clasped, looking extremely worried. 
they opened the kitchen door and trooped in. Yan, too. Mrs. Penruthlin leapt up at once and ran to them. She hugged Anne. She tried to hug George. She said all kinds of things at top speed, and to the children's dismay, they saw that she was crying. Oh, where have you been? she said, tears pouring down her face. The men are out looking for you, and all the dogs, and the Barneys, too. They've been looking for ages. And, and Mr. Penruthland's not home, either. I don't know where he is. He's gone, too. Oh, what a terrible evening. But thank goodness you're safe. Julian saw that she was terribly upset. He took her arm gently and led her to a chair. Don't worry, he said. We're all safe. We're sorry you've been upset. But where have you been? wept Mrs. Penruthlam. I pictured you drowned or, or lost on the hills or fallen into quarries. And where is Mr. Penruthlam? He went out at seven and, and then there's not been a sign of him since. The children felt uncomfortable. They thought they knew where Mr. Penruthlam was, getting smuggled goods from the motorboat and carrying them back with his friend up the wrecker's way. Now, just you tell me what you've been doing, said Mrs. Penruthlin, drying her eyes and sounding unexpectedly determined. Upsetting everybody like this? Well, said Julian, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Strange things have been happening, Mrs. Penruthlin. He plunged into the whole story. The old tower, Grandad's tale of the flashing light, their journey to explore the tower, the secret passage to the wrecker's cove, their imprisonment and escape, and then Julian stopped. How was he to tell poor Mrs. Penruthlin that one of the smugglers was her husband? He glanced at the others desperately. Anne began to cry, and George felt very much like it too. It was Yan who suddenly spoke and broke the news. We saw Mr. Penruthlin in the cove, he said, glad of a chance to put in a word. We saw him. Mrs. Penruthlin stared at Yan, and then at the embarrassed, anxious faces of the other children. You saw him in the cove, she said. You didn't. What was he doing there? We think... We think he must be one of the smugglers, said Julian awkwardly. We think we saw him get into a boat and row to the motorboat beyond the rocks. If so, he... Well, he may get into trouble, Mrs. Pen... He didn't finish because, to his enormous surprise, Mrs. Penruthlin jumped up from her chair in a rage. You wicked boy, panted Mrs. Penruthlin, sounding suddenly out of breath. You bad, wicked boy, saying things like that about Mr. Penruthlin, who's the straightest, honestest, most God-fearing man who ever lived. Him a smuggler. Him in with those wicked men. I'll box your ears till you eat your words and serve you right. Julian was amazed at the change in the cheerful little farmer's wife. Her face was red, her eyes were blazing, and somehow she seemed to be taller. He had never seen anyone so angry in his life. Yan went promptly under the table. Timmy growled. He liked Mrs. Penruthlin, but he felt he really couldn't allow her to set about his friends. She faced Julian, trembling with anger. Now you apologize, she said or I'll give you such a drubbing as you've never had in your life before. And just you wait and see what Mr. Penruthlin will say when he comes back, and hears the things you said about him. Julian was much too big and strong for the farmer's wife to give him a drubbing, but he felt certain she would try if he didn't apologise. What a tiger she was! He put his hand on her arm. Don't get so upset, he said. I'm very sorry to have made you so angry. Mrs. Penruthlin shook his hand off her arm. Angry? Oh, I should just think I am angry, she said. To think anyone should say those things about Mr. Penruthlin. That wasn't him down in Wrecker's Cove. I know it wasn't. I only wish I knew where he was. I'm that worried. He's down Wrecker's Way, 
announced Jan from his safe vantage point under the table. We put the trapdoor down over him. Down Wrecker's way? cried Mrs. Penruthlin, and to the children's great relief, she sank down into a chair again. She turned to Julian questioningly. He nodded. Yes, we came up that way from the beach. Jan knew it. It comes up in a corner of the machine shed through a trap door. We, uh, we shut the trap door and piled sacks and things on it. I'm afraid, well, I'm rather afraid, Mr. Penruthlin can't get out. Mrs. Penruthlin's eyes almost dropped out of her head. She opened and shut her mouth several times, rather like a goldfish gasping for breath. All the children felt most uncomfortable and extremely sorry for her. I don't believe it, she said at last. It's a bad dream. It's, it's not real. Mr. Penruthlin will come walking in here at any moment. At any moment, I tell you. He's not down in the wrecker's way. He's not a bad man. He'll come walking in, just you see. There was silence after this, and in the silence, a sound could be heard. The sound of big boots walking over the farmyard. Clomp, 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 clomp. I'm frightened, squealed Jan suddenly, and made everyone jump. The footsteps came round the kitchen wall and up to the kitchen door. I know who that is, said Mrs. Penruthlin, jumping up. I know who that is. The door opened, and somebody walked in. Mr. Penruthlin. His wife ran to him and flung her arms round him. You've come walking in. I said you would. Praise be that you've come. Mr. Penruthlin looked tired, and the children, quite dumb with amazement at seeing him, saw that he was wet through. He looked round at them in great surprise. What are these children up for? he said, and they all gaped in surprise. Why? He was talking properly. His words were quite clear, except that he lisped over his s's. Oh, Mr. Penruthlin, the tales these bad children have told about you, cried his wife. They said you were a smuggler. They said they'd seen you in Wrecker's Cove, going out to a motorboat to get smuggled goods. They said you were trapped in Wrecker's Way. They'd put the trap door down and... Mr. Penruthlin pushed his wife away from him and swung round on the astounded children. They were most alarmed. How had he escaped from Wrecker's Way? Surely even his great strength could not lift up all the things they had piled on top of the trap door. How fierce this giant of a man looked, with his mane of black hair, his shaggy eyebrows drawn over his deep-set eyes, and his dense black beard. What's all this? he demanded, and they gaped again at his speech. They were so used to his peculiar noises that it seemed amazing he could speak properly after all. Well, began Julian awkwardly, we, uh... We've been exploring that tower and um, finding out a bit about the smugglers, and we really thought we recognised you in Wrecker's Cove, and we thought we trapped you and your friend by shutting the trap door and... This is important, said Mr. Penruthlin, and his voice sounded urgent. Forget all this about thinking I'm a smuggler. You've got things wrong. I'm working with the police. It was someone else down in the cove, not me. I've been on the coast, it's true, watching out and getting drenched, as you can see. All to no purpose. What do you know? What's this about the trap door? Did you really close it and trap those men? All this was so completely astonishing that for a moment nobody could say a word. Then Julian leapt up. Yes, sir, we did put the trap door down, and if you want to catch those fellows, send for the police and we'll do it. We've only got to wait beside the trapdoor till the smugglers come. Right, said Mr. Penruthlin. Come along, hurry. Chapter 18. Dick Gets an Idea In the greatest surprise and excitement, the five children rushed to the kitchen door to follow Mr. Penruthlin. 
Yan had scrambled out from beneath the table, determined not to miss anything. But at the door, the farmer turned round. Not the girls, he said, nor you, Yan. I'll keep the girls here with me, said Mrs. Penruthlin, who had forgotten her dismay and anger completely in this new excitement. Yan, come here. But Yan had slipped out with the others. Nothing in the world would keep him from missing this new excitement. Timmy had gone too, of course, as excited as the rest. What goings on in the early hours of the morning, said Mrs. Penruthlin, sitting down suddenly again. To think that Mr. Penruthlin never told me he was working to find those smugglers. We knew it was going on around this coast, and to think he was keeping a watch and never told me. Julian and Dick had quite forgotten they felt tired. They hurried over the farmyard with Mr. Penruthlin, Jan a little way behind, and Timmy leaping round like a mad thing. They came to the machine shed and went in. We piled, began Julian, and then suddenly stopped. Mr. Penruthlin's powerful torch was shining on the corner where the trap door was fixed. It was open, unbelievably open. The sacks and boxes that the children had dragged over it were now scattered to one side. Look at that, said Julian, amazed. Who's opened it? The smugglers have got out with their smuggled goods, and they've gone. We're beaten. Mr. Penruthlin made a very angry noise and flung the trapdoor shut with a resounding bang. He was about to say something more when there came the sound of voices not far off. It was the Barneys returning from their search for the children. They saw the light in the shed and peered in. When they saw Julian and Dick, they cried out in delight. Where were you? We searched everywhere for you. Julian and Dick were so disappointed at finding their high hopes dashed that they could hardly respond to the Barneys' delighted greetings. They felt suddenly very tired again, and Mr. Penruthlin seemed all at once in a very bad temper. He answered the Barneys gruffly, said that everything was all right now and any talking could be done tomorrow. As for him, he was going to bed. The Barneys dispersed at once, still talking. Mr. Penruthlin silently led the way back to the farmhouse, with Julian and Dick trailing behind. Jan had gone like a shadow. As he was not at the farmhouse when they walked wearily into the kitchen, Julian guessed that he had scampered back up the hills to old Grandad. Five past three in the morning, said Mr. Penruthlin, looking at the clock. I'll sleep down here for an hour or two, then I'll be up to milk the cows. Send these children to bed. I'm too weary to talk. Good night. And with that, he put his hand to his mouth and quite solemnly took out his false teeth, putting them into a glass of water on the mantelpiece. Oh, och, he said to his wife, and stripped off his wet coat. Mrs. Penruthlin hustled Julian and the rest upstairs. They were almost dropping with exhaustion now. The girls managed to undress, but the two boys flopped on their beds and were asleep in half a second. They didn't stir when the cocks crowed, or when the cow lowed, or even when the wagons of the Barneys came trundling out into the yard to be packed with their things. They were going off to play in another village barn that night. Julian awoke at last. It took him a few moments to realise why he was still fully dressed. He lay and thought for a while, and a feeling of dejection came over him when he remembered how all the excitement of the day before had ended in complete failure. If only they knew who had opened that trap door. Who could it be? And then something clicked in his mind, and he knew. Of course! Why hadn't he thought of it before? Why hadn't he remembered to tell Mr. Penruthlin about the governor standing in the shadows and his whispered message, Here! I'm here! He must have been waiting for the smugglers to come to him, of course. He probably used local fishermen to row through the rocks to the motorboat that had slunk over to the Cornish coast. And those fishermen used the wrecker's way so that no one knew what they were doing. The Barneys often came to play at Tremannan Barn, 
nothing could be easier for the governor to arrange for the smuggling to take place then, for the wrecker's way actually had an entrance in the shed near the big barn. If a stormy night came, all the better. No one would be about. He could go up on the hills and wait for the signal from the tower, which would tell him that at last the boat was coming. Yes, and he would arrange with the signaller too to flash out the news that he, the governor, was at Tremannan again and waiting. Who was the signaller? Probably another of the fishermen, descendants of the old wreckers and glad of a bit of excitement. Everything fell into place. All the odd bits and pieces of happenings fitted together like a jigsaw puzzle. Julian saw the clear picture. Who would ever have thought of the owner of the Barneys being involved in smuggling? Smugglers were clever, but the governor was cleverer than most. Julian heard the noise outside and got up to see what it was. When he saw the Barneys piling their furniture on the wagons, he rushed downstairs, yelling to wake Dick as he went. He must tell Mr. Penruthlin about the governor. He must get him arrested. He had probably got the smuggled goods somewhere in one of the boxes on the wagons. What an easy way of getting it away unseen. The governor was cunning. There was no doubt about that. With Dick at his heels, puzzled and surprised, Julian went to find Mr. Penruthlin. There he was, watching the Barneys getting ready to go, looking very dour and grim. Julian ran up to him. I've remembered something, something important. Can I speak to you? They went into a nearby field, and there Julian poured out all he had surmised about the governor. He was waiting in the dark last night for the smugglers, said Julian. I'm sure he was. He must have heard us and thought we were the men. And it must have been he who opened the trap door. When they didn't come, he must have gone to the trap door and found it shut with things piled on it. And he opened it and waited there till the men came and handed him the goods. And now he's got them hidden somewhere in those wagons. Why didn't you tell me this last night? said Mr. Penruthlin. We may be too late now. I'll have to get the police here to search those wagons. But if I try to stop the Barneys going now, the governor will suspect something and go off at once. Julian was relieved to see that Mr. Penruthlin had his teeth in again and could speak properly. The farmer pulled at his black beard and frowned. I've searched many times through the Barneys' properties to find the smuggled goods, he said. Each time they've been here, I've gone through everything in the dead of night. Do you know what it is they're smuggling? asked Julian. The farmer nodded. Yes, dangerous drugs. Drugs that are sold at enormously high prices in the black market. The parcel wouldn't need to be very big. I've suspected one or other of the Barneys of being the receivers before this, and I've searched and searched. No good. If it's a small parcel, it could be hidden easily, said Dick thoughtfully. But it's a dangerous thing to hide. The governor wouldn't have it on him, would he? Oh, no. He would be afraid of being searched, said Mr. Penruthlin. Well, I reckon I must let them go this time, and I must warn the police. If they like to search the wagons on the road, they're welcome. I can't get the police here in time to stop the wagons going off. We've got no telephone at the farm. Mr. Binks came up at that moment, carrying Clopper's front and back legs. He grinned at the boys. You led us a fine dance last night, he said. What happened? Yes, said Sid, coming up with Clopper's ridiculous head under his arm as usual. Clopper was right worried about you. Gosh, you didn't carry old Clopper's head all over the hills last night, did you? said Dick, astonished. No, I left it with the governor, said Sid. He took charge of his precious clopper while I went gallivanting over the hills and far away, looking for a pack of tiresome kids. Dick stared at the horse's head with its comical rolling eyes. He stared at it very hard indeed. And then he did a most peculiar thing. He snatched the head away from the surprised Sid and tore across the farmyard with it. 
Julian looked after him in amazement. Sid gave an angry yell. Now then, what do you think you're doing? Bring that horse back at once. But Dick didn't. He tore round a corner and disappeared. Sid went after him, and so did somebody else. The governor raced across the yard at top speed, looking furious. He shouted, he yelled, he shook his fist. But when he and Sid got to the corner, Dick had disappeared. What's got into him? said Mr. Penruthlin, amazed. What does he want to rush off with Clopper's head for? The boy must be mad. Julian suddenly saw light. He knew why Dick had snatched Clopper's head. He knew. Mr. Penruthlin, why does the governor always have someone in charge of Clopper's head? He said. Maybe he hides something precious there, something he doesn't want anyone to find. Quick, let's go and see. Chapter 19. Mostly about Clopper. At that moment, Dick appeared again, round another corner, still holding Clopper's head, with Sid and the governor hard on his heels. He hadn't been able to stop for a moment, or even to hide anywhere. He panted up to Mr. Penruthlin and thrust the head at him. Take it! I bet it's got the goods in it! Then Sid and the governor raced up too, both in a furious rage. The governor tried to snatch Clopper away from the big farmer, but he was a small man, and Mr. Penruthlin was well over six feet. He calmly held the horse's head out of reach with his strong right hand and fended off the governor with the other. Everyone ran up at once. The Barneys surrounded the little group in excitement, and one or two farm men came up too. Mrs. Penruthlin and the girls, who were now up, heard the excitement and came running out as well. Hens scattered away clucking, and the four dogs and Timmy barked madly. The governor was beside himself with fury. He began to hit the farmer, but was immediately pulled away by Mr. Binks. Then one of the farm men shouldered his way through the excited crowd and put his great hand onto the governor's shoulder. He held him in a grip of iron. Don't let him go, said the farmer. He lowered Clopper's head and looked round at the puzzled Barneys. Fetch that barrel, he said to Julian, and the boy got it at once, placing it in front of the farmer. The governor watched, his face going white. You leave that horse alone, he said. It's my property. What do you think you're doing? You say this horse is your property, said the farmer. Is it entirely your property, inside as well as outside? The governor said nothing. He looked very worried indeed. Mr. Penruthlin turned the head upside down and looked into the neck. He put his hand in and scrabbled about. He found the little lid and opened it. Out fell about a dozen cigarettes. Uh, they're mine, said Mr. Binks. I keep them there. Anything wrong with that, sir? It's a little place the governor had made for me. Nothing wrong with that, Mr. Binks, said the farmer and put his hand in again. He pulled at the lid and ran his finger round the hole where Mr. Binks kept his cigarettes. The governor watched, breathing quickly. I can feel something, governor, said Mr. Penruthlin, watching the man's face. I can feel a false bottom to this clever little space. How do I get it open, governor? Will you tell me, or do I smash Clopper up to find it? Don't smash him! said Sid and Mr. Binks together. They turned to the governor, puzzled. What's up? said Sid. We never knew there was a secret about Clopper. There isn't, said the governor stubbornly. Ah, I've found the trick, said Mr. Penruthlin suddenly. Now I've got it. He worked his fingers about in the space that he had suddenly hit on, behind the place where Mr. Binks had his cigarettes. He pulled out a package done up in white paper, a small package, but worth many hundreds of pounds. What's this, governor? he asked the white-faced man. Is it one of the many packets of drugs you've handled round this coast? Was it because of this secret of yours that you told Sid never to let Clopper out of his sight? 
Shall I open this packet, governor, and see what's inside? A murmur arose from the Barneys, a murmur of horror. Sid turned fiercely on the governor. You made me guard your horrible drugs, not clobber. To think I've been helping you all this time, helping a man who's only fit for prison. I'll never work with clobber again, never. Almost in tears, poor Sid pushed his way through the amazed Barneys and went off by himself. After a few moments, Mr Binks followed him. Mr Penruthlam put the white package into his pocket. Lock the governor up in the small barn, he ordered. And you, Dan, get on your bike and get the police. As for you, Barneys, I don't know rightly what to say. You've lost your governor, but it's good riddance, I'll tell you that. The Barneys stared after the governor as he was dragged away by two farm men over to the small barn. We never liked him, said one, but he had money to tide us over bad times. Money from smuggling in those wicked drugs. He used us Barneys as a screen for his goings-on. It's good riddance. You're right. We'll manage, said another Barney. We'll get along. Hey, Sid, come back. Cheer up. Sid and Mr Binks came back, looking rather solemn. We're not going to use Clopper anymore, said Sid. He'll bring us bad luck. We'll get a donkey instead and work up another act. Mr Binks says he couldn't wear Clopper again, and I feel the same. Right, said the farmer, picking up Clopper's head. Get the back and front legs. I'll take charge of old Clopper. I've always been fond of him, and he won't bring any bad luck to me. There was nothing more to be done. The Barneys said rather a forlorn goodbye. Sid and Mr Binks shook hands solemnly with each of the children. Sid gave Clopper one last pat and turned away. We'll go off now, said Mr Binks. Thanks for everything, Mr Penruthlin. So long. See you again when next you're by here, said Mr Penruthlin. You can have my barn any time, Sid. The governor was safely locked up, waiting for the police. Mr Penruthlin picked Clopper up, legs and all, and looked down at the five children, for Jan was now with them. He smiled at them all, looking suddenly quite a different man. Well, that's all finished up, he said. Dick, I thought you'd gone mad when you went off with old Clopper's head. It was certainly a bit of a brainwave said Dick modestly. It came over me all of a sudden. Only just in time, too. The Barneys were nearly on their way again. They went over to the farmhouse. Mrs Penruthlin had already run across. The girls guessed why, and they were right. I'm getting a meal for you, she cried as they came in. Poor children. Not a mite to eat of you had today. No breakfast, nothing. Come away in and help me. You can turn out the whole larder if you like. They very nearly did. Ham and tongue and pies went on the table. Anne picked crisp lettuces from the garden and washed them. Julian piled tomatoes in a dish. George cooked a dozen hard-boiled eggs at the stove. A fruit tart and a jam tart appeared, as if by magic, and two great jugs of creamy milk were set at each end of the table. Jan hovered around, getting into everybody's way, his eyes nearly falling out of his head at the sight of the food. Mrs. Penruthlin laughed. Get away from under my feet, you dirty little ruffian. Do you want to eat with us? Yes, said Jan, his eyes sparkling. Yes! Then go upstairs and wash those dirty hands, said the farmer's wife. And, marvel of marvels, Jan went off upstairs as good as gold and came down with hands that really were almost clean. They all sat down. Julian solemnly put a chair beside him and arranged Clopper in such a way that it looked as if he were sitting down too. Anne giggled. <laughs> Clopper, you look quite real. Mr Penruthlin, what are you going to do with him? I'm going to give him away, said the farmer, munching as hard with his teeth as he did without them. Two friends of mine. 
Lucky friends, said Dick, helping himself to a hard-boiled egg and salad. Do they know how to work the back and front legs, sir? Oh, yes, said the farmer. They know fine. They'll do well with Plopper. There's only one thing they don't know. <laughs> the children looked at him in surprise. Why the sudden guffaw? Mr. Penruthland choked, and his wife banged him on the back. Careful now, Mr. Penruthland, she said. Mr. Clopper's looking at you. The farmer guffawed again. Then he looked round at the listening children. I was telling you, he said, there's only one thing these friends of mine don't know. What's that? asked George. Well, they don't know how to undo the zip, said the farmer, and roared again till the tears came into his eyes. They don't know how to... How to <laughs> undo the zip. Mr. Penruthland, now behave yourself, said his amused wife. Why don't you say straight out that you're giving Clopper to Julian and Dick instead of spluttering away like that? Gosh, are you really? said Dick, thrilled. Thanks most awfully. Well, you got me what I wanted, so it's only right and fair I should give you what you wanted, said the farmer, taking another plate of ham. You'll do well with Clopper, you and your brother. You can give us a show one day, before you leave for home. <laughs> Clopper's a funny one. See him looking at us now. He winked, said George in an astonished voice and Timmy came out from under the table to stare at Clopper with the others. I saw him wink. Well, it wouldn't be surprising if he did wink. He's really had a most exciting time. That was Five Go Down to the Sea by Enid Blyton. Read by Jan Francis.